Well, you guys have got me two times in a month. I guess if you're going to stay, you're probably going to stay. <clears throat> um, you know, to echo what David said, I'm so grateful for everyone who came up to me and said, is there a kid who needs a sponsor this year? Uh, because every one of them did, and it was, uh, no one was turned away. We actually took one more to camp this year than we did last year, and I was very happy about that. It was, yes, that's good. But the thing that, why camp is important is not so much so the kids can have fun or even bond, which is wonderful. It's so they can see a glimpse of what they can be and be a part of in the kingdom of God. That this is bigger than us. That we as a church want to help restore families. And at camp, it was so apparent, and it's never been more apparent, of how important fathers are. Um, As Shelby mentioned, I lost my father uh, to cancer and uh, I've buried my father, my stepfather, and my grandfather, um, and so they're all gone. There's, um, there's really nothing left of a father for me on this earth, and Father's Day is tough because people have one or two experiences. One is you had an extremely wonderful father, and you missed them terribly, or you didn't, and for those who didn't, there is hope. There is hope. And it's painful, but if we do not push into the pain, we continue the cycle of broken homes. Pain is a great distorter of truth. And the fact is this, what I'm about to say today, we have to hold two tensions in mind. When I say fathers are important, I am not saying mothers are not. I'm saying both are. In our society, we have really attacked what a father means. We've had so many bad examples which are constantly highlighted that the countless scores of men who have been faithful and have loved their families are often overlooked. But there are many men who have faithfully loved their families and have stood the test of time. And there are many of us who have broken paths that we have been restored and now are on God's path. And if we don't understand how important fathers are to our own homes, then we have no chance to do anything in the culture. Everything rises and falls on men. When men are destructive, and irresponsible, and they don't do their job, everything around them is destroyed. No civilization has ever failed because the women were the bad part of the equation. It's always been the men. Always. Human history rises and falls on the leadership and love of a male. And that is hard to hear in this day. We don't want to hear it in this day. But the fact is this, look at our culture and tell me I'm wrong. We, I read a statistic recently that Father's Day is the 26th most celebrated 
holiday in America. I don't, I don't know 10 holidays. Mother's Day, top three. Why is that? It's because many children have been born without fathers. The fatherlessness in our country is the root of so much that is broken in our homes. It's interesting that in Deuteronomy 6, Moses is saying a farewell to the people of Israel that he's led for 40 years. This is his last, really, pronouncement over the people. And he talks specifically about the family and how important it is to guard the family, protect the family, to be there for the family. And here's the problem. There are no perfect men. You look out throughout scripture, almost everyone the fathers are terrible in the Bible. Adam, one of his sons was a murderer. Went right under his nose of how angry he was at his brother. Abraham had favorites, lied, give his wife to another man, didn't trust God and brought calamity upon the whole world because of his terrible decision not to trust God. Jacob had favorites, isolated his favorite son from the rest of his brothers and brought pain and destruction upon his family. David, the mightiest of men, did not discipline his own home and it was destroyed from the inside out. Eli, two undisciplined sons that caused the glory of the Lord to depart and he dies as a failed father. You look out throughout the scripture and there really is only one example of a good father of a Bible character, who is it? God. And that's why he's father. Because without him, we really wouldn't have an example in scripture of a good father. See, in our day, because of the industrial revolution, we have said that a successful man has financial stability. But if you see God, he both provides for the physical needs and the spiritual needs. We teach men to be financially stable. We don't teach them to be emotionally available. That is the last thing that a man is taught. You are successful if you work, you make money, you take care of your family's financial needs, but every wound in this place of a father is a father who emotionally abandoned them. So yes, a good father does provide financially, but he also provides emotionally and spiritually, which means you have to slow down. You have to focus on your family and do things that are difficult. I'm not good at this. I'm good at doing things for my family, not with my family. If they need something, I'll help. I'll carry in groceries. But I often retreat into myself. It's a struggle to be emotionally available to people, isn't it? It's like I turn on the airplane mode. I'm disconnected. And if we want to regain our families, we have to push to that pain to be again spiritually and emotionally available to our children. Now here's good news. Your kids never stop needing you. 
ever. Some of you think, oh, I got them out of the house and I'm gonna get them out of the house. They won't need me. They need you even more. It never stops. You don't stop being a parent. There's time to redeem what's been broken. And here's how. Let's read Deuteronomy 6, verse 1 through 9. Moses in chapter 5 has just given a list of thou shalt nots, the Ten Commandments. He switches gears and listen to what he says. Deuteronomy 6, verse 1. Now this is the commandment, that the statute and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you're going over, to possess it that you may fear the Lord your God and your son and your son's sons by keeping all his statutes and all his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, Israel, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. He just got done telling them all the things not to do. It's like putting poison labels on things that are dangerous. In your home, you tell your kids, don't touch this, don't touch that. It's not because you're being mean, you don't want them to get hurt. That's a part of discipleship is the no. What Moses is about to teach them is the yes. Let me give you an example of how this works. Everybody close your eyes. Close your eyes. Get to that quiet, uncomfortable place of your brain. Do your best not to think about an Oreo cookie. Don't think about it. No matter what you do, don't picture an Oreo cookie. Keep the Oreo cookie, that delicious cream center filled Oreo cookie out of your mind. Don't do it. Don't even think about that cookie. Don't touch it. Don't even smell it. Don't pretend that you're sticking a fork and dipping it down in milk and eating it. Do none of that. How many of you were successful? That's a lie. <laughs> Thou shalt not lie. Chapter five, Shelby. Dang. He, I know. You thought when I said cookie, it was in your brain, wasn't it? Now, I want you to close your eyes. Thank you, Ellie. <laughs> I'm glad we have our children here, by the way. It's good to have the wiggles and kids to learn how to be in worship. This is a good thing, by the way. Church should be uncomfortable, loud, and weird all the time. And then we teach them how to become a little bit more holy and sanctified, and they grow up and like, oh, okay, I shouldn't be so disruptive and weird in church. And they learn and grow, okay? Everybody's been pinched by their parent at one point or another in church. Now I want you to close your eyes. And I want you to picture this. I want you to picture a beautiful beach. It's at sunset. There's a breeze blowing. Your feet is in the water. You can hear the waves. It's purple and orange and beautiful. And it's just ocean and beautiful sand. Open your eyes. That's what Moses is trying to do in chapter 6 with the peoples. Give them a vision for what they are to do. Yeah, uh, eating a cookie on the beach, that's a great idea. 
Okay, well, good. Maybe we'll have that for lunch. All right. Now, he's saying if you keep these statutes, God won't strike you dead. That's not what he's saying. He's saying if you keep these statutes, you will have a long life. There's a blessing to obedience. Not just God going to strike you down. No, no, no. God's going to bless you. God's going to give you a long life. He's going to protect you. Now, here's the fact. We can still be obedient to God and get sick, but to be obedient is an abundant life to God. It's not a guarantee that we'll have a long life, we obey God. There's been many godly people who have died early. But what he's saying is, there's another way to have a long life. Don't we live on through our children and grandchildren? Isn't that inheritance of the child's blessing that we live for God and that we plant a tree that we never get to see fully grow, that then plants a tree that they never fully get to see grow that will all accumulate into the kingdom of God? A godly inheritance is living a long life. No matter if it's 30 years, 60 or 90, there's people who've lived to 100 and never lived one day because they didn't know Christ. But to live godly, listen, we don't tell you guys not to do stuff because we don't want you to have fun. We tell you not to do stuff because it's all a dead end. And we love you. And we want you to have a long, good life. This is verse four, the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. I want to stop there. The way I, the, this is why it's called the Shema. That's the Hebrew word for listen. But it's the context of listen to take action. So, imagine this. Imagine you have a sick child, and you have no GPS, but there's someone that has medicine that's 30 minutes away, but you have to take several turns to get there. You have no GPS, and you have to listen to their instructions to get to your child some medicine so they can live. How carefully would you listen? Everything. Say that again. What do I do after this? And they'd always say, if you've gone to the railroad tracks, you've gone too far. Every time. Don't go over the railroad tracks. It's in every direction. I always go by hand by drive like that. Take, go to the red barn. Take a left. You'll see a crooked tree. Take a right after that. And if you've gone to the railroad tracks, you've gone too far. And like, okay, got it. And I always hit the railroad tracks. Is this inevitable? I'm terrible at driving. That's why Tiffany is like, no, turn here. Except we are a good pair because I know north and south, and she doesn't know left and right. So together we make a team. You know what I'm saying? Anybody like that in the house? Yeah, it's a teamwork makes the dream work. What Moses is saying is listen to these instruction as if your life and your kid's life and your grandkid's life depend upon it. Listen carefully. Shema. Now, this is kind of interesting because this is going to lead into the application for the rest of the sermon. Of you got to know this because it's often misunderstood about this passage. This is so good. The Lord our God is one. And the Hebrew, it's really saying he's the only one. He's the only one. Why is Moses telling this to the people? What land are they about to enter? And who, who inhabits the promised land? Polytheist. People who believe in many gods. In fact, at this time, they are the only ones that are monotheistic to the degree that they are. 
Most people have several different gods they worship. That's why in the desert, they built a golden calf in Egypt that symbolized strength and power. And they weren't very sure of Moses' strength and power. So while, they were, while he was getting the Ten Commandments, they built an image of power because they were afraid. They didn't trust God. And he said, if you're going to make it in the land, you have to trust me that I'm your power. And he says, this is how this works. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Heart in the Hebrew is not emotions like we think of it in our Western society. Back then, they believed the heart was the center of the person's intellect and will and intelligence. It was literally the root of everything that made a person function the way they functioned. Their skills, their abilities, their discernment. That's why the Bible says that wisdom lives in the heart in Proverbs. It's the fully functionalized view of the mind and heart being brought together because we often say, well, that person's just emotional, that's a heart person, or that person's an intellect, he's a head person. There's some of you that live through your feelings. There's other of you that live through logic. But it's both. It's those combined. He says, you love the Lord with all that. But then... He says, with all your soul, which is interesting because it literally means the essence of the entire human, both inside and out. It's the entirety of a person is their soul. It's kind of like what we would see as a black box in an airplane. It records everything. It's the essence of that plane because it controls all the function. It has all the memory. It has all the things and data that that airplane has ever done. The shell is being recorded into this one place. It's the very seat of a person. It's where the breath of life of God was given, that he breathed breath into a man, and that's his life. He's saying your entirety. Now, this is where it gets confusing, because it says with all your might. In the Hebrew, it's madah. It doesn't mean might. It means much. In layman's terms, he's saying, when you combine loving God with all your heart and with all your soul, the third piece is maximum effort. You're all in. It's down on the floor. It's the fourth gear and you're hitting going into five with the RPMs high. You're like, well, Clayton, I don't know if I have that gear. Fine. If you only have the third gear, you go out in third gear or second gear. Whatever you got left, you give all that that's left. As we get older, we have less and less and less in the tank. You can't be a 10 when you're 80, it's okay. There's some people can, that's like Jim Winchester, but he's the exception. I mean, I, I, I just, I mean, I don't, I, you do not live all of us. But what it's saying is whatever you got to give, give it all. Now, here's where the encouragement comes in. Because see, Father's Day is often a time where we just beat the living daylights out of dads, moms with their flowers. Dad, we give rulers now, ask if they measure up. It's just, just, it's not a great holiday for men to come to church. You know, it's just like your wife's sitting over there and it's got that, she's got that I told you so look, you know, like, yeah, we should, you know. And it's like, oh, geez, give me a break. Well, here's your break. If you're there and you love your family and you're doing it imperfectly, you're doing your job. Men, if you have loved your family and you've stayed, 
and cared for them, you're doing your job. Here's the thing. You also got to get better at your job. At work, if you don't get better at your job, what happens? They fire you. We relax too much on one end of growing and then guilt ourselves on the other end that we're actually trying. You should be growing as a father. You should be growing as a man. And if you're not, it's just a time to reflect, as I've had to the past year. When I've not grown, it's been, it's been horrible. This has been a terrible year. I've not, like, I'm not going to win any Dad of the Year awards from last year. It, I just was on the struggle bus, like falling out of it, getting ran over by my own bus and trying to get back onto it. I mean, it was, it was not, this has not been a great year for me. Like, I don't want highlights from the last year. Anybody there? But this is the hope. That this commandment's not upon you. It's on God. Moses is telling the people that they have to be focused on God, not to be God. You can't save your family. You can't fix everything. You can't carry everything. You can't. You're not responsible for your spouse's happiness or your kids. You're responsible to be a good man and to live in repentance, broken, tired, frustrated, every single day. Again, you look throughout the Bible, there are no perfect fathers except God. The strongest men fail in the family the most in the Bible. I hope that brings you some measure of comfort. Because as we think about our lives, I think some of our missions is that we would love our kids better than our parents loved us. And we try to heal our wounds to being better parents and that's not how that works. You have to heal on your own. Your kids won't heal you no matter how much you love them. No matter how much you do for them. It's impossible to heal your kids or you through your kids. You're putting too much weight on them. You have to be right with God. That's why he talks about the inner person before the behavior. He says this leads to this. Yeah, you shouldn't do these, but they're gimmies. We all want to live in a society that doesn't kill, steal, steal your spouse, and do horrible things to you and your property. But the heart of this passage is what Jesus quoted. Let's keep reading. Verse 6, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. And you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Because we're to love God and to love others. This is the commandment. All of it rests on these two things. It's very simple. Jesus says to the Pharisees, you have burdened the people with these laws when the law can be summarized with this statement, love God and love others. If you're not doing that, you're not doing it right. 
love God and love others. This is the great commandment. Did Jesus not say those words? Now here's the interesting thing about this dynamic. Moses puts the weight of how the nation will do on the families, not the priest, not the religious leaders. He says this nation rises and falls with your families. It rises and falls with you. And when we understand that, church takes on a new dynamic. So, now that we understand what Moses is saying to the people, what do we do with this? How do we actually make family discipleship a real thing at a church with broken people, broken families, broken stories? I mean, if we took a poll in here right now, I'm sure some of us aren't speaking to our kids or to parts of our family. Is there not brokenness in this room? Is there not pain? But do we not long for that to be whole? Do we not long for our marriages and our relationships to be whole? Of course we do. But in order to do that, we gotta take some very small steps that accumulate. So if you want to get back your family, you can go cold turkey and say, well, I'm taking away everything. We're going to scrape this house down to the beams and we're just going to live, you know, out in the middle of the wilderness. That's an option. If you do that, you still have sinners in your home. Again, Cain did not have TikTok or violent video games or music and he beat his brother to death with a rock. You get what I'm saying? We've got to go after the heart of the problem. So let's start small. Let's first evaluate where we are. That's why Moses begins with loving God with all your heart and soul. He's saying you need to reflect upon where you're at. If we do that, we begin to take inventory of where we're actually failing. And you might find that you're not failing as many places as you thought you were. You're no good to you or anyone else if you're always hard on yourself. I've learned that the hard way. Beating yourself up won't make you better. The second thing is this. Begin to do what Moses said and talk to your family. He lays the pattern out right here. And you shall teach them diligently. Verse 7, your children, you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down, when you rise. Do you notice the behavior and comments that he made here? Was there anything like miraculous about what he said? He's literally saying, as you live life, you teach your kids. It's why Jesus used parables. He was outside. He says, look at the birds. Look at the grass. He used everyday things as he walked through the countryside and cities to teach his disciples, to disciple people. Look, some of you have a formal view of discipleship that you got to sit down and have family time and sing a hymn and uh, read you know, the church fathers. And if your kids would do that, man, do it. That's awesome. I'm not going to bash you for that. My kids won't. There'll be mutiny on the deck. I mean, getting through dinner sometimes is kind of a small miracle. Anybody with me? It's like, whoa, we made it through a dinner not arguing, said no one ever. (laughs) 
I mean, it's nice to sit down and be able to have a meal with your family and talk and it not lead to a fight, but that's not the real world. Some of you have that, and that's great. I'm thrilled for you. But listen, asking your kids simple questions is discipleship. Just having a conversation with them and being natural. Listen, I don't care how much you love Jesus. If you go up to someone like, hey, you want to talk about Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior? It's like, what? It feels so uncomfortable. And you say, Clayton, it shouldn't be. Yeah, it shouldn't, but it is. I mean, it's kind of hard to pray with your spouse if you're being honest. Some of you got that down, some of us don't. And here's the thing. Here's where the real rub is. One word, busyness. How's that word set on your heart? How many of you feel busy right now? Shut up, come on. None of you feel busy? Come on. How many of you feel busy? Be honest. There we go. This is participation. I'm not going to stop until I get you going. One way or another, I'm going to wear you down like I did Tiffany. It had to be done. You're busy. Your soul's frazzled. The thought of discipling your kids feels like you being dragged across 100 grit sandpaper because you're just happy to get home and maybe see the kids before they go to bed or to even talk to your kid once in a while because everyone's so busy. But if you reflect upon however long you've been busy or felt you've been busy, what'd you accomplish? What have you accomplished? What can you look back and tangibly see that you've actually accomplished with all your busyness? Now take another inventory. How much have you missed and longed for while being busy? See? We accomplish so little in our busyness, but we long for so much. This is a starting point. Read a passage of scripture at the table and talk about it. Pray over your kids at night. Find ways to encourage them. It's little small things that build up over the course of a life. Some of us will want to go home and make up for 10 years of lost time, and that's not the point here. Get you right. Find out where you're messed up and broken, and then you can help others. A drowning man can't save another drowning man. And you know what? If we're being really honest, I'm going to get really nosy and just awful and terrible. And, you know, there's going to be people who don't like me. Fine, good. But men suck at asking for help. We do. Because there's this subtle message that men are supposed to have it all together and be strong and have everything down and just be impenetrable and always roll the punches. It's not true. On the way here this morning, I slept very little working on this message because I just hate it. I hate thinking about it. You better have to go really bad, boy, if you're getting up. Huh? You got to go that bad? Walk of shame. Okay, let's go. I'm timing you. Raise a child in the way he should go. When he's older, he won't depart. (laughs) 
Oh, yeah. Oh, boy. Yeah, oh, man. Those boys and getting up and going to the bathroom all the time. I tell them every week, me and David, we're just going to start tasing them. I've already told the cop tase them. We'll see how much pee they have. That's why you guys hired me. This kind of insight. I'm here to change the world. Why is it that a man can have the confidence to go on YouTube and do a job that's so far above his pay grade to save a few bucks, but we don't have the same gumption to do that with the Bible? I have literally done things that I could have killed my entire family if it didn't go right, watching a YouTube video. It was YouTube and prayer. But when I feel lost as a man and don't know how to lead my family and I feel like I'm struggling, I just sit in silence and withdraw. You will run your family and your marriage into the ground. It is not brave of you to go on quietly struggling no more than it's smart of you to have a tire that's misaligned and you driving it while you smell burnt rubber. There is strength in numbers. That's why Solomon said a cord of many strands is not easily broken. Have you thought to yourself that maybe trying this solo act is not working? That's why when he says teach your sons, he uses the plural. He says the whole community is to teach each other as a community. You know, we used to have this adage, it takes a village to raise a child. My neighbors would like yell at me and tell my mom and like they all knew me and knew what I was doing. And it was just like they had their own little CIA network of spying. No matter where I'd be across town and my mom would get home. like, oh, I've heard you've been doing this. I'm like, how did you, who told you? It doesn't matter who told me, I know. I'm like, oh gosh. I'm like looking over my shoulder, looking for people peeking out of bushes. It's not that way anymore. Most of us don't know most of our neighbors. Or don't want neighbors. Yeah, amen. I heard that. But if we treat each other that way in the church, nothing's going to happen. As we end today, I want you to keep this in mind. That your greatest legacy that you will leave to your children is not money. It is you. When I buried my dad and my grandpa, they didn't leave me a penny. But what they left me, I wouldn't trade for a hundred billion dollars died dirt broke and poor but they give me something that I couldn't buy I couldn't trade for I was 19 when I started preaching my dad was a stone cold atheist 
just hated church, hated the Bible, hated everything. We debated constantly and I tried countless times to love him and share the gospel, but at 19 he came to hear me preach the one and only time he did. I knew that it was a lot for him to do that because he hated every moment of it, I'm sure. And after I got done, he looked in the eyes as an atheist and said, son, this is what you're supposed to do. My dad gave me that gift. He loved me. He was proud of me. And he was very imperfect. Very imperfect man. But he gave me an incredible gift. And that's what we give our children. Yes, a godly man has an inheritance for his children's children. But are you giving them a godly inheritance as well? It's good to give kids an inheritance and have something for them. That's beautiful. But what has sustained me is not my grandpa or father's money. It was them. And the same thing with Tiffany's grandpa and grandma and my grandma and grandpa. They loved us so well. They left us an inheritance that cannot be bought with money. And Moses is saying, if you want to keep your land, you must do this with your children. And keep in mind one last observation. Moses is talking to the second generation who were a lot of kids when he delivered them. He buried all their parents because they were faithless. He was talking to a broken generation that had faithless parents who worshipped idols, who wanted to go back to Egypt, who would not take the land and sentenced their children to 40 years of wandering in the desert because they did not have the faith to trust God with their life and their family. And Moses saying, if you want to do that to your children, go away from God. But if you want to keep them in the land, obey what the Lord has done and love and invest in your children. That is why we exist, Parkway. That is our mission and nothing else. I'm going to end today a little bit different. I've asked you to bring your children in here. That wasn't because I didn't want to do children's worship because I want to have something special. If your child is here today, I want you to pray over them and give them a blessing. Gather as your family and when you're done, we'll close. I'm going to give you a few minutes. Even if you want to go grab your kids, I don't care, but I want you to pray over them and I want the men to bless their children and then we'll close.